When speaking of jellyfishes, we usually think of painful stings. Because of this, jellyfish blooms can affect tourism, but they also have impacts in aquaculture and in the past even caused shutdowns of power stations. But not every jellyfish is born the same. Different species require different approaches, either in the healing of a sting or the amount of caution needed when encountered. At the same time, observing seasonal trends of jellyfish spotting is a good way to access environmental problems like climate change and water quality variation. When it comes to jellyfishes, there is more than what meets the eye. Today we welcome Professor Alan Dune to unravel the hidden mysteries of these curious creatures and the importance of citizens' contributions to his work. Professor Alan Daydun is a marine biologist and associate professor at the Physical Oceanography Research Group of University of Malta. He is the director of the International Ocean Institute, Malta Training Centre, and a board member of the Environment and Resources Authority of Malta. Since 2010, Professor Daydun coordinated the Spot the Jellyfish Citizen Science campaign that has contributed to increased scientific knowledge of jellyfish species in Malta's coast. So, Professor Dayton, um, of all the things to study, why jellyfish? Jellyfish are incredible creatures. They've been around way before the dinosaurs. In fact, uh, they are amongst the oldest living creatures uh, currently on Earth. Um, in fact, it's been estimated that they've been around for about 700 million years. So they are incredible creatures. And <laughs> as somebody rightly pointed out, they are living evidence that you can actually survive without having a brain because <laughs> they don't actually have a brain as we know it, you know. Uh, they have a very simple nervous system, which you cannot actually compare to a brain. And, for instance, they also lack other uh, basic structures, like eyes, for instance. They have what we call eye spots, so they mainly distinguish light from dark. So, even though they're simple, you know, they're extremely successful, because their numbers, as we very well know, unfortunately, when we get stung and so on, uh, they, are, they are prodigious and they have this venom, they have chemical warfare, they have chemical protection, which still, you know, stupefies us to this very day. And what about your favorite jellyfish species? I would say that it would be the Friedeck jellyfish, uh, which in Maltese we call Assata, which corresponds to a very popular pastry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I love the jellyfish uh, for a number of reasons. First of all, it is safe to approach because it is a non-stinging species. So that in itself, you know, is you don't feel, you know, uncomfortable uh, going around it to photograph it and so on. Secondly, it is a surface species, so it sticks to the surface. Surface, so it's very accessible, not just for divers, you know, but even for snorkelers and so on. And, and thirdly, because of the bright colors, um, it's it's you know bright yellow, um, yellow, orangish, and so on, with uh, bright purple tentacles. And normally, you also have a few fish juveniles hiding between the tentacles and traveling around with this. Uh, floating, you know, uh, colony. You could call it a colony. So yes, I would pick that jellyfish species. So it's a symbiotic relationship. It is. Species? Yes, it is a. It and there's more than one symbiotic relationship because there's the symbiotic relationship or mutualism between the jellyfish and the mini PV panels or mini solar panels that it houses in its purple. 
tentacles. That's why it has to stick to the surface because these use light, like all plants, photosynthetic organisms, and therefore it sticks to the surface. So these mini algae, these mini solar panels, provide the jellyfish with sugars. But then there's this symbiotic relationship between the jellyfish colony and the fish, which hide between the tentacles to seek refuge, like Nemo within the sea anemone, basically. I remember. And the clownfish, they don't get stung, right? Exactly, because they have a sort of mucus which they rub constantly over their bodies, which makes them immune to the jellyfish, to the sea anemone sting. And sea anemones basically are very close relatives of jellyfish. They belong to the same group. So maybe that's what we need to do, is rub some of this mucus on ourselves when we go swimming. Uh, there's uh, there's <laughs> quite a number of commercial products out there which are based on the rationale. So um, the, besides the jellyfish sting treatment uh, out there, there's also sort of uh, sting prevention. So you, you rub this sting on you and it, it claims to protect you against the actual sting, which is not 100% foolproof. You know, so it's not like these uh, commercial products which protect you against mosquito bites. The jellyfish ones are not as foolproof as the mosquito ones. We mentioned Nemo earlier, and one of your, pro- well, the main project is, uh, the Citizen Science Project, is led by, there are lots of children involved. Exactly. Do, you, do you think that films like Finding Nemo have helped to encourage kids to, you know, to explore marine Yes, this is a a good point because a a lot of damage was done in the past through films, for example, like Jaws, you know, where we've actually demonized the sharks. People started, you know, not started, we were always, men was always afraid, obviously, of of great whites. But I think Jaws uh, gave the wrong perception that all, all there is about sharks is just, you know, a man eating machine, which is far from reality. So... The balance was sort of redressed a bit through films, like you mentioned, uh, Finding Nemo, then Finding Dory, you know, and so on and so forth. So, yes, the marine domain, uh, we, we are in an age where ocean literacy is big. So ocean literacy is that uh, a discipline where it tries to make people more literate about the sea, about the role that the sea plays in each in, in the in the life of each one of us you know because we know very little about the sea okay we know that it's uh, not just about the the obvious things you know about the habitats the species and so on but every uh, for instance even toothpaste you know it's it's based on a product which is harvested from the sea every second breath that we take comes from the sea not from trees you know so 50% or more of the oh. oxygen comes from phytoplankton, those miniature plants in the, in the ocean. So we know very little about this. And this is very anomalous, uh, especially in an island nation like Malta, where most Maltese kids, uh, millennials and younger, don't know the Maltese names for the most popular Maltese fish. Oh. I mean, embarrassingly, I don't know most of them either. <laughs> but, you know, let's, let's, let's just keep swimming to, yes. to quote Dory. <laughs> and regarding... This increase in ocean literacy, uh, you mentioned as well in the the Find the Jellyfish campaign, that children are starting to see jellyfish as interesting creatures. So they're not just bad, they're not just dangerous. Um, have you seen this kind of mentality shift in adults as well? Yes, um, luckily, yes. In fact, when we started off with the campaign, one of the main objectives, besides the 
obvious objectives. What do I mean by obvious objective? When you do a citizen, when you run a citizen science campaign, one of the main objectives is to gather data, obviously, to acquire data. There are some other low-hanging fruits, as we might call them, for instance, to change people's perception. For example, we produced through an EU-funded project linked with this with this Pot the Jellyfish campaign, a citizen science campaign, a set of postcards uh, teamed with with the marine environment, specifically with jellyfish. So each postcard carried within the pack a particular uh, a photo of a particular jellyfish species. And I think the mentality has changed. The message has has been driven home now that not all jellyfish are stinging are stinging organisms. Actually, the stinging jellyfish are the minority of jellyfish, you know, species. The majority of jellyfish in our waters do not sting. That's the first message. Second message, jellyfish sting you because you are in the wrong place at the wrong time. Not because they actually hate you or they hate humans in general and so on. <laughs> this brings me to the first point, the jellyfish don't have eyes. They just think you're your piece of plankton that they want to eat. So you get stung. It's, it's, it's passive. The thing is passive. So it's like the same way when a shark bites you. It doesn't necessarily bite you because it wants to kill you. It bites you because it wants to to identify what you are. It's like when people that's, touch. That's one theory, yes. And But then after the first bite, if there is more than one bite, that it's those bites are there for consumption uh-huh. because it needs to eat. Because then it's hungry. You know, <laughs> exactly. But most shark attacks, yes, stop at the first bite. So the campaign celebrated its 10th anniversary. Congratulations, first of all. Uh, Tell us a bit about some of the most significant discoveries that you've had to date. Yes. uh, So let's start from the scientific. Um, I think we added six new species to the list of uh, jellyfish species known from Maltese waters. So we documented at least six, perhaps the count even higher. So we documented species which we didn't know existed in our waters, including alien ones, uh, because we work a lot on alien species as well. Probably we might in a future program speak about alien species as well, because <laughs> we have a citizen science campaign on that. Uh, so we documented uh, species which never existed here. True, I would say, as an estimate, the latest count is around 3,500 validated reports we received over the past 10 years. So that makes an average of 350 reports per year, which is roughly an average of one per year. You might say, oh, one per day, sorry. You might say one per day, um, it sounds anomalous in summer when most of us go to the seaside mainly in summer you know mm-hmm. we receive on average 10 to 12 reports per day whilst you know in in autumn winter and early spring when most of us do not go to the, to the seaside and so on that rate goes down so that's why the average and i mention i'm mentioning only the validated reports you know what do i mean um, we received many more, much more than the 3,500 reports. I'm focusing only on the validated reports. So once the report comes in, we have to validate it. We have to check it. We have to look at it for to see how credible it is. Mm-hmm. So we have to check for the photo. We encourage people to submit photos with the reports so that it allows us, it gives us, you know, a bigger chance of um, of checking the identity of the jellyfish that it has been accurately identified by the person. But in the absence of a photo, we don't just discard the report. We use uh, our our prior knowledge and our expertise, our our uh, common sense. For instance, if you tell me I've seen 20 Portuguese men of war in a particular area, there's no photo, and I know that the Portuguese men of war is extremely rare in our waters. Mm-hmm. It's spotted, you know, we normally spot two or three colonies per year, and you've spotted 
scores of them in a particular place, I would tend to discard that report, unfortunately, you know. So validation is extremely time consuming and is one of the main challenges of citizen science campaigns. I would love to hear more about challenges in regards to retaining such a so much interest and such a huge level of participation from volunteers, especially when you think about Malta. It's a country, unfortunately, where vast uh, majority of people are disengaged with environmental issues. And this is very much an environmentally based project. Exactly. This is a very good point. One, I would list this as one of the main challenges when you're conducting a citizen science campaign, that you keep people engaged and interested in your campaign, even after uh, 10 years that we've started. With jellyfish, it's not that difficult, you know, to keep people engaged because people are, are inherently interested about jellyfish, you know, and we have the seaside boards, the seaside panels, campaign panels on all of our blue flag beaches around the island. So we have them in many sites, not just blue flag. We have around 50, 30, 30 beaches in Malta, Godzon Comino, which are covered with the seaside panels. Yeah, so I've seen them. Exactly. So when you go to the beach, you cannot miss us. You know, we're there. Uh, so it's and, and kids, especially kids, it's quite easy to get their imagination fired, you know, by speaking about jellyfish, taking props with you, taking uh, in the case of jellyfish, we, we can only take uh, soft toys, uh, you know, very quite, quite, uh, you know, realistic soft toys. So we have soft toys, which, for example, for the fried egg jellyfish, we have another one for uh, the moth stinger. So they are species uh, related. They are specific, you know, not just uh, any soft toy, genetic soft toy. Why am I saying this? Because for other species, we could use this stuffed organism or the frozen organism, but jellyfish do not preserve well. Mm -hmm. So we prefer to use to, uh, soft toys, you know? I actually saw once um, a bunch of, I think they might have been mob stingers, um, hundreds beached yes. on, at Ramla Bay. Yes. I'd never seen anything like that in my Probably life. Probably it was early, oh no, it was late, late winter. It must have been sometime in January or February. Uh, because, I think it was actually in, in, or in spring March or April. Or springish. Yeah. Because this this is interesting. Mm -hmm. The timing, jellyfish follow follow seasons as well. There's a seasonal variation and then interannual variation. So jellyfish seasons are not the same each year. And they depend a lot on what happens on land. Let me give you two examples. So winter 2020, so last January, it was uh, was really dry and really warm by any standards, whilst the preceding January, January 2019, was the complete opposite, very wet and very cold. We had two completely different jellyfish seasons. So in 2019, the moth stinger, which is the purplish uh, jellyfish called Brahma Maltese, which is very generic, <laughs> and it's most common jellyfish in our waters, we had a very late jellyfish season starting off. It started in June and extended till September and made everybody, you know, really miserable because <laughs> they they peaked their population during the peak baiting season. Whilst last year, the season started early in March and ended in June. So by the time we went to the beach, the moth stinger was gone and many people commented that last year we didn't have any jellyfish, which is not true because jellyfish are always there. But they're referring to the moth stinger, which is the bedy one, because it stings. Mm -hmm. Whereas I they don't refer to the non stingers. With it, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've all been bitten quite a few times. Well, stung rather than bitten. I was stung actually at the, in the beginning of this summer, in July. 
here and I still bear the, the scars. I think the scars will be with me forever. I have a oh, massive God. scar over oh, here. And there was a single jellyfish that day, not a bloom. And it was the only time I swam without my goggles because I had forgotten them. And the only time, because I make it a point to always swim with goggles. I think it's a very good piece of advice. Do you think that there is a connection between becoming more environmentally aware and a better quality of life? In Malta, we tend to be focusing a lot on, let's see, on development, for instance, on you know, on land. Do you think that that is slowly starting to affect uh, marine life as well? Unfortunately, yes. Um, you might um, the connections between what we do on land and the sea might not be obvious uh, from the very beginning. But if you get to think of it, you know, we have a lot of coastal development in Malta. So every time we construct, you know, a new jetty, a new wharf, you know, a new mooring, anything with our within our ports and harbors, because now now that land, the land is super. Um, it's super crowded. Even our seas are becoming slowly, 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 you know, more and more crowded. So the amount of boats, of recreational boats, of vessels that we have in Malta is incredible. So there's a big demand for moorings and a big queue for moorings. So our yacht marinas have, have grown and there are plans to, you know, increase the the footprint of yacht marinas and so on. Even when you, when you speak of vessels and all these infrastructure that we need, you know, for maritime transportation have had to increase. You know, that has an impact because you have to, you know, destroy part of the seabed. You have to reclaim part of the seabed. Now, there's a lot of uh, talk about land reclamation, about increasing our footprint. You know, uh, we dump legally, not illegally. We dump a lot of our construction debris, what we call inert waste. So that uh, which is building rubble construct when we demolish a new, a new uh, oh, an old house, or we'll, when we are excavating to build foundations for a new house. There's most of our most of our waste over eighty percent consists of this in terms of volume of this inert waste. We the, the, we deposit that, we discharge that, we uh, we dump that legally out at sea. There is a spot outside the Grand Harbor, two kilometers out, where it, it has been dumped for, for decades, you know. So we have an impact, even our discharges, you know, discharges from land. Once, when, when it rains in Malta, it pours. Uh-huh. Everybody knows that, you know, we have these flash floods. So we have a lot of runoff from land, taking off all our, you know, uh, poorly indispo- uh, indisposed uh, waste, like plastic, you mentioned plastic, but even fer- fertilizer and pesticides from, from our land, waste oils and so on, that is all ends up into the sea. So, you know, even the myriad of cigarette butts we leave along the coast, you know, at the end of summer, all that gets washed up into the sea with the first storm. So, you know, the connection on an island between the land and the sea are unmistakable you know they, you cannot you cannot run away from that but you, you mentioned that we we dump uh, this this rubble in, yes in the, it, surely that can't be good for for the ocean Can it? In, one has to look at it from different perspectives in the sense that malta lacks enough space on land to dump that waste mm-hmm. that inert waste so we always have this problem that quarries uh, use quarries spent quarries exhausted quarries are filling up because so far most of it has gone into used quarries, you know. But if we had to, and there's another thing, the the inert waste which is dumped at sea uh, in that spot of the Grand Harbor, it comes from projects which are located along the coast. So it makes more sense to take that massive amount of waste, put it on a barge, and take it out at sea, rather than putting it on lorries, 
thousands of trips of lorries and trucks driving through our villages to go to the quarry on land. If you are a project situated on the coast, along the coast, you know, so there is there are different different sides to the coin, to the uh-huh. same coin, unfortunately. You know, what I don't agree with is that initially when they identified that spot of the Grand Harbor, there wasn't any any uh, site selection exercise. They didn't study the site before to see that it was ideal, that it didn't. Uh, containing and protective species and so on, you know. So if a process is done properly, you know, uh, and this is the what we call an EIA, and part of the EIA, Environment Impact Assessment, uh-huh. Where, you know, if a project if a, a project is done is executed properly, environmental considerations are taken on board and so on, you know. I'm not saying that impacts would be zero, but at least you would mitigate those. Uh-huh. So we always exactly we always look at impact mitigation. That is the key word to mitigate, you know. But things obviously were done differently in the past. Hopefully now we are in a situation where we're better informed. We have the tools because to work in the sea, it's quite, you know, you need the proper tools. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these cost a lot. And here at university, we participate in a lot of EU-funded projects to get the money to actually buy those tools. You know, so so yes, but we, we cannot uh, not think about the sea. Every time we do, uh, we engage in any activity here on land. Have you looked at whether um, this, the way that waste is dealt with, whether it's having an impact on the jellyfish populations that you're studying? Um, this is, this is, how shall I say, this is a million dollar question in the sense that many people often ask us, why are jellyfish blooms increasing? Data suggests that yes, over the past few decades, jellyfish blooms have become more frequent and uh, they've increased in intensity and so on and so forth. Pollution uh, in the sea, besides climate change, warming of the seas, besides increase of man-made structures in the sea, and besides overfishing, those are the four key factors, have been implicated in the increase in jellyfish blooms. You know, so because jellyfish are better competitors than fish. Fish, uh, jellyfish can survive even in very low oxygen concentrations and dissolved oxygen, you know, whilst fish would have long died because there is insufficient oxygen, jellyfish can survive. So they survive in some of the most, you know, challenging environments, what we call dead zones. There are some areas of the ocean which are we call dead zones because of men's activities where you still find jellyfish, you know, so they are survivors. And, uh, and uh, you know, we, that's, that's another reason why we should obviously not pollute our seas because we create this imbalance. I'm not saying that we should eradicate jellyfish, but having jellyfish blooming every year is also not good. It creates an imbalance. And how does that affect the rest of the marine ecosystem? This imbalance, obviously, you know, in fact, there's somebody actually said in a paper recently that the Mediterranean is shifting from a fish-dominated sea to a jellyfish-dominated sea. So this is creating an imbalance where you reduce biodiversity in general. Because if one component, jellyfish in this case, dominates, other components have to compensate for that. So the species which are eaten, predated by the jellyfish, will obviously suffer. And you cannot say, listen, let's increase the population of turtles to cope with jellyfish. It doesn't work like that. Turtles develop and mature much more slowly and not in the same numbers as jellyfish. So you know where are you going to deal with jellyfish by simply increasing the population of, of money turtles. Of course, it's very complicated. I mean, and the and the food chain as well exactly, is very complex. Exactly. 
You mentioned earlier that you've discovered some alien species. Yes. The introduction of these alien species, is that correlated in any way with um, the way we're disposing of waste and the increased pollution? I would, say, I would say the major driver of these alien species introduction is climate change and the warming of the seas. Mm-hmm. Uh, so hopefully uh, we will get the U.S. once again signing, joining the Paris Agreement for climate change. And I say, hopefully, you know, depends on what happens in that part of the world, you know, in the coming uh, days, weeks and so on and months, you know. But climate change, yes, the sea is warming up. So species coming in through the Suez Canal, mainly from the Red Sea and Indian and Pacific Ocean, are finding that the Mediterranean is much closer to home in terms of sea temperature. So before they used to come here, but they couldn't overwinter. Winter was really, you know, too harsh for them because the temperature dipped, you know. But nowadays, Mediterranean, the temperature in winter is not going down as much as as it used to in the past. We have data for that. So they are managing to survive, setting shop here, setting root, reproducing here, you know, and so on and so forth. To sum up, how do you see the project evolving in the next few years? Yes, we have quite an, an interesting uh, an interesting uh, initiative going on, which we wish to implement within this Pod the Jellyfish campaign, which is AI, artificial intelligence, uh, mainly through through image analysis. So, along with my colleague Dr. Adam Gauci, which who also works within the same department, a uh, department of geosciences, uh, we've developed an algorithm which basically uh, has been trained. So when you people who work in artificial intelligence, especially on algorithms, know that when you develop a program, a, a, a um, an algorithm, that algorithm needs to be trained. How? We gave, we submitted the many thousands of jellyfish photos we received from the public over the past 10 years. And we basically trained the algorithm saying, listen, these 200 photos all refer to the Moff Stinger. These 500 photos refer to this species. These 300 photos to this species. So we actually trained it to start identifying the species itself. And then what we did after the training phase, we got some other photos of jellyfish randomly from the internet, not from our database. We submitted them to the algorithm without telling it now, you know, the the hand-holding stopped there. And we asked the algorithm to come up with its own. And it gave us, the answer it gave us was in probability. So it tells you, listen, unknown one, 95% it is a moth stinger. 5% it's something else, you know. And we saw the results that we got from the algorithm. We compared them with the with the correct results. And there is a over 90% success rate. So what, what we want to do in future is optimize, improve this algorithm further, then embed it within a, a smartphone app so that people can freely download the smartphone app, take a photo of the jellyfish, run the algorithm through the app, and the app will give you a real-time a probability. It will tell you 90, 95% is this species, 5% is this. So in a way, it would help us greatly with validation, since validation, as I said earlier in the program, is a time-consuming, laborious process. And most importantly, it would give immediate, prompt feedback to the public. Just to perhaps close off on this remark, the Spot the Jellyfish campaign, and I'm very proud of this, is the oldest running jellyfish spotting campaign um, being being conducted on a national basis in the entire Mediterranean. So Malta is the only country to have this campaign running nationally for so long. That's amazing. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> I would take this opportunity, obviously, to thank our sponsors, namely the International Ocean Institute, IOI, whose headquarters are on campus as well, uh, and the Malta Tourism Authority, 
uh, through through their support. People might think that tourism and jellyfish don't have anything to do with each other, but uh, Malta Tourism Authority understood fully our point of view that it's best to give people out there and prospective uh, tourists of Malta the right message, the correct message, an informed message, rather than people getting, you know, going in panic because they search up something on Malta and finding, you know, that there's a lot of jellyfish and so on and so forth. So it's better to go for an informed opinion and also even telling people uh, some advice, giving advice how to treat with jellyfish things if you are you are stung. It's not the end of the world, you know, there is treatment out there. So better be informed rather, you know, than, than actually going to the seas without any information at all. Exactly. And remember, jellyfish are cool. <laughs> exactly. <laughs>